TLC? Hey, I just got to tell you guys, uh, we're continuing our series in Colossians. We're kind of wrapping up uh, the poem that sort of sits at the center of the entire letter. Torin kind of uh, bit off the, the big chunk of it last week, and he confessed, like, hey, I've, this week's been tough, been super nervous, trying to figure out how to kind of teach on this, what to focus on, and I have to echo his thoughts, all right? This message, this has been a labor of love, one that has been a bit of a struggle. I'll even confess to you that uh, at some point during the week, I, I felt like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm getting somewhere, putting a pen to paper. I'm went to my first line of processing, my wife, Olivia. For those of you who know Olivia, she's like the kindest person you've ever met. And I was like, hey, baby, like, hey, can you just listen to this? Like, tell me if this makes sense, you know, what you're thinking. And uh, so I, I did some of that. And I kid you not, uh, after I was done, she looked at me and she said, <laughs> she said, are, are you, you're going to say that on Sunday? <laughs> and before I can even respond, she goes, I'm just, I'm just a little confused. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm back to the drawing board on this one. All right, thanks so much. So uh, if, if this message doesn't make sense to you, it's Olivia's fault. All right, talk to her, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hey, I want to tell you about a perfect gift. But to do that, I need you to hop in your time machine or my time machine. I don't know. Hop in a time machine with me. And I want you to go back to 2017, the year 2017. And the date was January 29th. January 29, 2017. Does that date stick out to anybody in the room? No? Any tennis fans in the room? No, they're all watching the Wimbledon final this morning at home. Uh, that's this morning. Do not spoil it for me. I am recording it, all right? Uh, and please don't pull out your phones and watch it. You don't care about it. You didn't even know that it was happening until I just told you. January 29, 2017 was the day of the Australian Open, the men's Finally, Australian Open is one of the biggest tennis tournaments of the year, one of the big four tournaments. And on January 29th, 2017, two legends met in the final, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. Check out this. Oh, look at that. Legends, those guys. Okay. You, may, you probably don't care about tennis. You're like 99% of like people. You don't care about tennis. All right. I get it. But you've probably heard of these two guys, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? They, they met in a final. Like, what's going on, right? Well, let me explain. Let me kind of set the stage, give you a little background as to why this was such a big deal, okay? So going into this tournament, you have Roger Federer on one side. Roger Federer, he is like one of the best, right? Leaning into this tournament, he hadn't played tennis in over six months. His career ranking had dropped the lowest it had been in 16 years. He was ranked number 17 in the world. And many believed his career was like over, you know? It was officially, or unofficially, but officially done. And his participation in the tournament itself felt maybe more sentimental, like a start of a goodbye tour. And on the other side of the net was Rafa Nadal, the best tennis player of all time, if you ask me. And some people, but not everybody, okay? But that's, that's mine, all right? Rafa Nadal is my favorite player. I love him so much. On the other side of the net, he's sitting there, and he had been having his struggles of his own. He for the first time in over a decade, found himself ranked number ninth in the world, lowest it had been in over a decade. He had been struggling to win finals, struggling to even stay on court, and many believed that his decline was underway. Both players were well past the age of retirement for most tennis professionals. Both had won more tournaments in tennis history than anyone else, and here they were meeting in the final. No one had expected one of them to win the six matches necessary to make it to the final, but both of them had made it in the most unexpected, beautiful finals, most anticipated, one of the most watched tennis finals in tennis history. It was a masterpiece, okay? A perfect gift 
in the tennis world. Here's the only problem. For a tennis fan like myself in the U.S., which there are not a lot of us, the match began at 3.30 a.m. 3.30 a.m. because it's Australian time. You know how that time stuff works. And so I didn't have to wake up. No one was going to force me to wake up. But if you think I was going to miss this match, you got another thing coming, okay? And so I got up. I met my brother, some friends of ours, I think we convinced in college. I was in college, so it was a little easier. But trust me, I was up at 3.30 a few years ago, too, for, to watch Rafa, all right? I'm about that life, all right? So I got, we got some friends together. We went to Taco Bell before they closed at 4 a.m. We came back, and we watched one of the most beautiful, unexpected masterpieces of a match ever, like in history. It did not disappoint. It was unbelievable, okay? My response to this perfect gift wasn't, didn't feel as much required as it felt like it was awakened, literally, at 3.30 in the morning, You know what I'm saying? Because a response to a perfect gift feels like a lot less of a requirement and a lot more of a reflex. It just sort of like happens. It's awakened more so than it is required necessarily. I want us to hold on to that this morning as we dig into our text from the letter of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to chapter one. We're gonna be reading just two verses this morning, verses 21 to 23. And like I mentioned earlier, we're kind of picking up in uh, this last bit of this poem that the entire letter of Colossians is sort of centered around. And Torin did a great job last week of of biting off the the meat of that thing and did a great job. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. But the poem uh, can be summarized as this, ready? Jesus is supreme over the old creation He created it, he sustains it, and Jesus is supreme over the new creation. He created it, he sustains it. And this last bit of this poem that we're going to read this morning is Paul's way of saying, listen, Jesus is supreme over the old creation, he's supreme over the new creation, and now he's going to establish how Jesus is supreme when he, as he reconciles, as he brings the two, old creation and new creation, together. All right, so let's read here. Colossians chapter one, verses 21 to 23. It says this, Paul writes, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he, talking about God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul's conclusion is simple. Paul's conclusion is this. You have been rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future, which only happens if and only if you continue in your faith firm and established. There is a response expected. This is Paul's conclusion. You, you were, you were uh, rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future, which only happens if you continue in your faith established and firm. There's a response expected. Now this last piece, this if, is a, is a big deal. It, it can raise some questions, can cause some troubles for us. We're, we're left wondering some different things. And we're going to spend most of our time on that this morning. You, if you've never heard a sermon on the word if, you're about to hear one today, okay? 
all right? But I do want to touch these first two before we get to that. Rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future, all right? So, so first, you were rescued from sin in the past. In, in verse 21, Paul says, once you were alienated, you were alienated from God. Paul's just saying, listen, you were separate from God. You were in need of rescue. You were in need of divine intervention because your sin and your brokenness has separated you from God. It's alienated you from God. And Paul then says, he says, once you were alienated and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What Paul's doing is he's connecting thought and action. You see, for Paul, thought to believe something and then to, to live that out, to act, the two are so closely connected that they can't be separated for Paul. This is why he, he spends it positively earlier on in the chapter in one, in uh, verses nine and 10, he says, I pray that you'll have wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a way worthy of the Lord. He's connecting thought and action. So he says, you were alienated from God because you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You were enemies in your minds because your evil behavior is what led you to your alienation and it's also a result of your alienation from God. You were enemies in your minds, your evil behavior, thought and action, the whole thing is corrupt, the whole thing is broken, the whole thing is in sin, and you are in need of rescue. And then Paul's like, I got some good news for you. Verse 22, he says, but now, so you were in need of rescue from sin in the past, but now, he says, you have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free of accusation. So Paul is hammering this point. He's saying, listen, you were reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. Paul just repeated the same thing like twice, basically. He's trying to make sure that his audience understands Christ was physical. He died a death that humans die. Jesus fully, has fully identified with his people. He's fully identified as human. He has taken on human sin. He's fully human. And if you read the letter in its entirety, you know, Paul's just finished talking about how Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the image of the invisible God, right? He's fully God and he's fully human. And it's through his physical body, through his death, that all things are being reconciled. All things are being made new. You see, the cross is the place where a human sin and a holy God meet. Paul's saying Christ's physical body, the fact that he took on human flesh and the fact that he is the image of the invisible God has come together and now all things are being reconciled, all things are being made new. And this is like a reality shifting event for Paul, okay? It moves from like top to bottom. It's like cosmic as well as it trickles all the way down to the personal individual level of this this salvation, this healing, this all things being made new. I love the way that N.T. Wright, he's a, he's a theologian. I think he's like a British or something like that. And he says, um, he says that, that this event for Paul scales all the way from, he says, from whales to waterfalls. He says it in a British accent. Uh, look to the person to your right and in your best British accent, say, from whales? I'm sorry, I asked you to do something. Will you please do it? I'll do it with you. For the person to your right, say, from whales? Wow. Can, maybe we can do it this time, all right? I, I want you to look to the person to your left. Oh, sorry, from Wales. All right, now look to the person to your left and say, to waterfalls. And if you haven't heard Brenda Scott's British accent, come forward after the service and ask, hey, can I hear your British accent? It is horrible. Okay, anyway, 
from whales to waterfalls. Like the whole thing is being made new. It's a reality shifting event. The overview video that we watched in week one said, uh, they summarized Paul's letter to the Colossians that the whole created order is touched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. All of it, right? From cosmic level to all the way down to the personal level. We are in need of a savior. We are in need of salvation, of healing. And it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only, his life, death, and resurrection that we can experience that. We were rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future. This is great news. Jesus has made this possible. He's made this available, right? It's great news. But then, and this is where we're going to kind of sit the rest of the morning, Paul slaps that pesky little if on there. Did you catch it? He's like, you've been reconciled or rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Now this if that Paul puts in here is really important. It's really important for two reasons. The first reason is, I think that this word if, this idea that Paul's laying out here is the bridge between our past and our future. It's the bridge between our alienation from God and our reconciliation. But it's also important because this if from Paul, I think, raises a lot of questions for some of us, causes us some trouble, some unrest maybe. Some of us maybe have a little bit of a crisis of faith. Like, wait a second, why is Paul saying if you continue in your faith, you get to experience all this stuff that Jesus offers? Why, why is Paul slapping a, a condition on that? Like, does, it, does he mean that I have to get it all together, get it all perfect, get it all right, get all my stuff, all my ducks in a row before I can like experience this? Is that what Paul's saying? Or, or, or is Paul saying that there are conditions? I thought, I thought this whole Jesus thing was like free, like no conditions. What's going on here? I thought Paul said in Romans that, that something about like all have fallen uh, short of the glory of God. They're justified freely. Why is Paul slapping this if on here? And these are all great questions. So let me be clear. Paul is not saying that to experience the, the life that Jesus is inviting us into, to, to move from alienation to reconciliation, Paul's not saying that you have to earn it. Paul's not saying you have to deserve it. It's free. Paul says this very clearly, and you're right, Romans 3, 24, it says, all fallen short of the glory of God, sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And 3, 24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You can't make it any more clear. It's free. At the same time, I think Paul to the churches in Colossae and through God's living word today wants to remind us that we can't confuse the cost of a gift and our response towards that gift. Like, we can't get confused between the cost of a gift and it being free, and our response towards that gift, and, the, and what we do with that perfect gift. Like, check it out. Let's say uh, we go walking into a restaurant. You go walking into a restaurant, and uh, you, you know who the owner of the restaurant is. Maybe you've heard of him uh, at times. You kind of know what he looks like. You walk in and you think, like, maybe, that, maybe that's, the, I think that's the owner of the restaurant, like, behind me, you know? And you order food, uh, and it's not that fancy of a restaurant because you're just ordering food at, like, a, a, a booth or whatever. But the, the owner of the restaurant is standing behind you and says, you know what? Hey, I, I got his meal. I, it's taken care of. I'm going to pay for it. 
And they kind of suggest that you guys kind of have a meal together. You sit down, you, you, you get to know each other a little bit. You've heard of this guy. Maybe you look, you, you look up to him a lot or whatever. The cost of that gift is free. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. He's just like, you know what? It's free. I got it. That's the cost. But wouldn't it be a little weird if your response towards that gift, towards the owner of the restaurant, was like, actually, I'll pass. See you later. And you just walked out. No food or anything. Or, or wouldn't it be weird if you were like, hey, thanks so much. You know what? Actually, can I get that in a to-go bag? I'm going to bust out of here. Thanks so much. See you never. That would be weird, right? I think Paul is trying to help us distinguish between our, the cost of a gift and our response towards it and, and asking the question, like, is this what we do with Jesus sometimes? Because just because a gift doesn't cost you doesn't mean it shouldn't change you. I'll say that again. Just because a gift doesn't cost you doesn't mean it shouldn't change you. A perfect gift awakens a response that realizes the gift and brings transformation. And without that response, we'll never experience the gift. Paul's wanting to make it crystal clear. You have been rescued from sin in the past in order to be presented holy in the future. But listen, you gotta respond if you continue in the faith, established and firm. Just because a gift doesn't cost you doesn't mean it shouldn't change you. And this pattern, this pattern of a, of a perfect gift, a free gift from God that awakens a response, that realizes the gift and brings transformation is not unique to what Paul's saying we need to do here. No, it's actually a pattern that we see throughout the Bible. Like all the way at the beginning in Genesis. In Genesis 3, God's like, hey, here's this perfect free gift of creation. It's awesome, right? Adam and Eve, it's great. Here, I'm giving it to you. All right, I want you to fill it and I want you to take it somewhere with me. And it doesn't go so good, right? And then God's like, okay, all right, back to the drawing board. All right, Abraham, I got an idea. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God's like, Abraham, listen, I got a plan for you. I'm gonna give you a nation. I'm gonna make your descendants like the stars. I'm gonna give you this covenant. But well, here's the deal. I need you to leave your home. I need you to leave this place that you've gone. I need you to go to a place that you've never been. Goes all right, then things don't work out. Israelites, Abraham's people find themselves in slavery. God comes in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and God's like, hey, listen, I got this perfect free gift. It's it's a, a freedom and liberation from slavery and Egyptian oppression. But here's the deal. I need you to do some stuff on your door. I need you to walk out. You need to walk across the sea. I'm gonna give you 10 commandments, and you need to live the way that I want you to live. And it doesn't go so well, right? And so this pattern of of a perfect gift that awakens a response, a response, and without that response, the gift isn't realized, the gift isn't experienced, but when it is, transformation happens, is echoed in the life of Jesus. Jesus walks this earth, and, and he cast the demons out of a man, and he said, go and tell your friends what I have done. There's a response. Jesus acquitted a woman caught in adultery, and he said, go now and sin no more. On the lips of Jesus, those with resources are expected to give, those with power are expected to serve. For those whom the cross is carried, they are expected to carry theirs. Jesus says, carry your cross daily. Because just because a gift doesn't cost you doesn't mean it shouldn't change you. A perfect gift awakens a response that realizes the gift and brings transformation. And without that response, 
the gift will not be realized. The gift will not be experienced. Paul says, once you were alienated, now you've been reconciled, if and only if you continue in the faith. And so we've got to ask the question then, what does it mean to continue in the faith? If that's the condition, if that's the thing that, that, that we got to do, that's the response that's meant to awake, be awakened in us and help realize the gift and experience, what does it mean to continue in the faith? And this is where Paul gets super helpful because he slaps down these two terms. He describes what it looks like to continue in the faith. He says, I want you to continue in the faith, and he says, be established and firm. And what Paul's doing is, he's alluding, these are two architectural terms, like point blank, there's no debate about it. Paul is saying, Paul is alluding to this idea of building something and architecture and the integrity of it. And so he says, I want you to continue in your faith. I want you to be established and firm. And what Paul is doing is exactly what Paul should be doing. He's just saying something that Jesus had already said much longer before him. This is not an original idea to Paul, to continue in the faith, to be established and firm. You see, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he sat on a, on a mount or a plane. It looked like this. Uh, Torn and I got to be there just uh, about a month ago. It's such a gift, right? Uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee uh, on the right. And Jesus sat in this area, and he delivered what's called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. And in, this is like his seminal work, right? Like this is like Jesus like, explaining what his life is about, what he's all about, what his kingdom is all about. It's like his magnum opus, you know, like it's like the, the masterpiece, right, okay? And what Jesus does, how you end anything is really important, right? And Jesus decides that he's going to end this whole sermon with an instruction through an illustration that Paul is alluding to, I think. So I want us to open our Bibles. If you have them, I'll have it on the screen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. This is how Jesus ends his entire Sermon on the Mount. He's just given this whole thing about how what kingdom life is like, what he's all about, what's going to happen now that he's here. And then he says, he gives this instruction through an illustration. Matthew 20, or 7, 24 to 27, he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, the sermon that he just gave, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Paul's like, listen, once you were alienated from God, you've been rescued so that you can be presented holy in the future, but you've got to respond. You've got to continue in the faith. You've got to build your life on Jesus. You've got to build your life on the rock. I think Paul is basically saying, listen, if you want to experience this perfect gift, this free gift, if you want to move from alienation to reconciliation, if you want to experience the healing and salvation that Jesus offers, don't make Jesus the roof of the house. That is your life. 
Don't make him the windows. Don't make him the door. Don't make him the cool Four Seasons room that you insulated so you can sip wine all year long in. Don't make him the guest room that he just stays there on Sunday. You have to make Jesus the foundation. Jesus doesn't want to be the roof. He wants to be the foundation. You must continue in the faith, established and firm. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. A lot of us, and I know this is me at times as well, a lot of us, we want Jesus to be the roof. Like, we want Jesus to be the thing that we slap on top. We want Jesus to be the thing that gives us like this false sense of protection. You know what a roof does when a real storm's coming? Nothing. And so we, we decide, you know what? Jesus is cool. He's going to be the roof after I've built my life on something or someone else. After I've decided where I'm going to live. After I've decided how I'm going to live. After I've decided what political opinion I'm going to take. Or after I've decided what's best for my schedule or my sexuality or my entertainment. But friends, Jesus doesn't want to be the roof. He wants to be the foundation. He wants to be the person that everything else is built on. He wants to be the the person that everything else is built on, how you live and where you live, the kind of friends that you have, who you have sex with and when you have sex, what you do for work and how you work. Jesus wants all of it. He wants all of it. He wants to be the foundation, not the roof. And I think Paul is making this crystal clear to the churches in Colossae through God's living word to us today that listen, once you were alienated, now you've been reconciled, but if and only if you continue in the faith, if and only if you build your life on Jesus, if you build your life on the rock, because a perfect gift awakens a response that realizes the gift and brings transformation. Paul's like, listen, if you want to experience the life that Jesus offers, the healing that Jesus offers, the salvation that Jesus offers, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be impressive. You don't have to drive a nice car. You don't have to have a perfect job. You don't have to be single or married. You don't have to have all the questions. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have no friends. You don't have to have a lot of friends. You have to do one thing and one thing only. Continue in the faith. Build your life on Jesus. Build your life on the rock. Keep attaching yourself to him. Keep believing in him. Keep, like Jesus said, remaining or abiding in him. Build your life on the rock. Friends, Jesus is the perfect gift that awakens a response that realizes the gift and brings transformation. And here's the deal with this response business. This response is not about God wanting something from you. It's about God wanting something for you. Like I wholeheartedly believe that our response to the gift that God offers us in Jesus is solely dependent on the view that we have of God, of the person who's offering us the gift. And as I was praying, no joke, like 10 minutes before the 9 a.m. service, I just sensed that God was like, listen, I think you need to clarify some, something for some people this morning. Some people who think that I'm the kind of God that I'm not. In 1 Samuel 8, 
way back like before Jesus, there's the people of Israel, God's people. They, they've been led out of slavery. They're trying to figure out what it means to be like a group of people, a nation. And they're surrounded by an ancient world that has all these nations that have kings and that have armies, and they want some of that. They're like, God, listen, it's cool that you've kind of been in charge of us and we've had this like pillar and we've had this, you know, different stuff that's helping us. But listen, we want a king. We want a king. And God's like, no, trust me, you don't want a king. Life is way better when I'm in charge. And they're like, no, 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 we want a king. God's like, no, trust me, you don't want a king. It's way better when I'm in charge. And they finally, they they demand a king. They say, God, give us a king. And God says, you know what? You can have a king. I'll give you a king. If you want a king, I'll give you a king. But he says to the prophet Samuel, he says, make sure you tell the people this. Make sure you give them this warning about a king in this earth, what they're going to do. He says, tell them the ways of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to the armies. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your orchards and your vineyards and your uh, fields. He will take the tenth of your grain and your crops. He will take your male servants. He will take your female servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks. You see, the kings of this earth are the kings who take, but I am a king who gives. The kings of this earth, of sex, of money, of fame, of power, of all the things that you could put at the foundation, at the top of your life, they take from you. I am the good king. I give. And when, when that's the view of, of God, when that's the view of, of our king, it awakens a response that realizes the gift, that brings transformation. It's like we have no choice. So I want to kind of land the plane this morning by just sharing an observation that I, I had this week when I was kind of reading and meditating on this illustration from Jesus. I recognize something that I truly don't know if I've ever noticed before, or if I have, I don't remember it. Do you want to know what these two houses have in common? The house that was built on the rock and the house that was built in the sand? They have one thing in common. The storms came. Jesus is like, listen, it doesn't matter if your house is built on the rock or your house is built on the sand. You know what's going to happen? The rains are going to come down. The streams are going to rise. The winds are going to blow and beat against the house. Because the question to ask in this life is not if the storms are going to come. The question to ask is when the storms come, is our foundation established and the structure of our life immovable? And hear me out. I don't want this to be like this like fear-mongering thing, like everything's falling apart, like you need to get your life together, like blah, 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 blah. I don't think Jesus is interested in that. I think Jesus is graciously saying, spelling out what he's all about, what his life is all about, what his kingdom is all about. And then in the midst of that, he graciously recognizes, listen, I know this is how it's going to be, but I also know that you live in a broken, sinful, hurting world. And I know the storms are going to come. And what Jesus is doing, I think, is graciously and kindly saying, hey, when the storms come, I'd like to help. If you build your life on me, your foundation will be established, your structure will be immovable. And so the question we're left with, of course, this morning is, will we let him? Will we let him be the foundation of our life? 
And so I wrestled all week this week, like, man, it feels like there's a, a, some sort of response that's needed. Like, what are we going to do? Jesus, like, how am I going to, like, lead people through this, pray, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just felt like I, I had this, like, mechanism. I was going to help people be like, here's where you're at or here's where you're at. And I just, like, this morning I was praying. It was, like, 6 in the morning, and Jesus was just like, listen, man, you can't tell everybody where they're at. You don't know where everyone is at. What you need to do is you need to point them to the person who does, and that's me. And so we're going to move into a time of response and worship of this King Jesus who is supreme, who asks us to build our life on him, on the rock. And as we do that, I I just want to invite us to to do whatever business it is we need to do with God. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask you to, to quietly, silently repeat it after me if you want to. And it's going to be very general. If you are someone this morning who just wants more of Jesus. You want to build your life more on the rock and less on the sand. Then I'm gonna invite you to pray with me this morning. Like, I don't, maybe you're like, I've never, I've never done this. I've never heard of Jesus. Like, I don't know what's going on, but like, maybe I wanna be a part of this. Maybe you're like, yo, I've been following Jesus for a long time. My life is built on the rock, but the storms have been coming. The stream is rising. And I'm like, what is happening, Lord, you know? Or maybe you're the kind of person that you're like, hey, you know what? I kind of like made the deal with the contractor for the foundation, but I don't know if I ever sold the property that is my life. I've never actually really given it to Jesus. I've just been like going to church and like doing the thing, you know? I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want to invite all of us because I think Paul is focused on all of us wanting more of Jesus to continue to build our life on him, to continue in the faith established and firm. And so I'm going to pray. And then we're going to move into a time of response and worship. And what I'd love to encourage you to do is if, if you're someone who God's moving, God's doing something, I'm going to be up here. Torin will be up here. We have some people from our prayer team that would just love to pray with you, to process with you, to hear what God's doing on a more personal, individual level and pray with you. But let's respond this morning by just declaring Lord Jesus, we want to build our life more on you, more on the rock, and less on the sand. All right, so if that's you this morning, again, just quietly, silently as I pray, just want to invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I am in need of rescue. I need you to to come and to, to make all things new. And in the present, I want to continue in the faith. I want to build my life on you, on the rock, so that my foundation is established and my structure immovable. Help me, King Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's respond in worship this morning.